Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the new ones behind the headlines. This is our Monday show, and it is coming to you later in the day, not because we're lazy, not because we slept in, but because we have a surprise. And here she is, Natasha Mascarenas. Please say hello. Hello, surprise everyone. I have made it to a show, another week of work, and this is definitely the busiest I've ever started my week of all time. It's just jumping on live and talking to Alex. So this is going to be fun. Yeah, no pressure to get all the numbers right and not make a mistake <laughs> right when you're drinking your first coffee. Uh, on the East Coast, it's lunchtime, so I'm feeling fantastic. But Natasha, to give everyone a quick overview of what we're going to do, we're going to take essentially the usual Monday format and we're going to glom on some stuff at the end. So we're going to start by talking about the markets. We have some breaking news from the last couple of days, a couple of notes on startups. And then at the end, we're going to talk big tech results and what we're taking away from last week's key set of earnings. But to kick things off, can I please talk about the stock market? Please do. What's going on? What's going up? <laughs> ah, uh, well, really, it's kind of like what's going down. Uh, okay, but in this case, the, the news actually is mostly good this week. In the last couple of months, we've kind of had mostly sad news. But today, shares are up over in Asia. They are mostly higher in Europe. And uh, critically for us here in the US, American shares are also trading higher in very early trading today. So it feels, you know, I don't want to jinx the week, but overall, like we're in pretty good shape. Alex, I know when the downturn was first showing its signs, I asked you this question where it's like, how many weeks of eh, things aren't looking too great has to happen before it's considered a downturn? With things going slightly up, are we like, I know you don't want to jinx it, but I'm going to ask you to jinx it. <laughs> are we, yeah, please. Are, are we getting more positive or does this feel like, a very small step, if you could give me a kind of in like step and gate format of confidence. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question because, you know, we started looking at declines in the public markets, you know, towards the end or kind of middle of Q4 was when it really began to kind of show. Okay. And I think what we've seen is not yet the upswing that I think you're kind of asking about, but instead we've reached a plateau-ish. For example, the decline in the value of software companies has essentially stopped. It's now bouncing around the same level, trying to figure out what's next. So I, I, I think that we're perhaps in and around the bottom, which gives us upside in the near to midterm. But of course, we don't know what's going to happen. The economy could get worse. COVID could get worse. Monkeypox, Taiwan. There's many things. Oh, my God. Yeah. But before we jump on to the next section, I did want to hear about crypto. I see Jackie in the audience here, and I wanted to give another second to how crypto is doing. Yeah, so crypto is something that we track uh, religiously because it's very interesting and moves very quickly. It's a bit like the stock market, but on a compressed timeline. So if stocks move in like multi-year cycles, crypto seems to like change month to month. And so we really do care. However, uh, not a lot of movement in the last hour, not a lot of movement in the last day, though I will say major cryptos like Bitcoin and ETH have essentially appreciated 6 to 7% in the last week. So if you do own crypto, you're probably sitting relatively pretty, just not a lot of movement in the last 24 hours. And uh, if you do want some more on that, I wrote about NFTs this morning just to stir the pot. So that's over on the site in case you're up for it. But Natasha, I'll just say not much going on. Okay, perfect. I love when you write about NFTs. It's always a treat. And I love when Marianne comments on it. So we should definitely get her uh, to talk about it on Friday. <laughs> I, I'm getting flamed on Twitter. Except my question was, what you know, what can make NFTs rise again? Because we've had two major NFT cycles now, the 2017 sure. CryptoPunks, CryptoKitty cycle, and then the kind of the bored ape era we just went through. And, you know, I did a little theory crafting, just having some fun on a Monday morning. What would NFTs be good for? And then people are like just attacking me on Twitter as if I'm some sort of like crypto bro. And I'm like, ah, how the turntables. <laughs> it's always fun. It just like blow up your Monday and do a, do a live show and talk about NFTs. Oh, You're gosh, obviously yes. in a great mood this Monday. <laughs> uh, well, you know, what? I, I slept well. My dogs are happy and it's sunny. So it's hard to be too bad. Now, Natasha, let's get serious and talk about Alibaba because 
This is a company that was a leading Chinese tech company that listed in the United States. I was actually backstage at, I think, TechCrunch Disrupt New York, the year it listed when we got like the final note that it was going to be uh, going public here in the US. Very exciting. And now we could be kind of looking at the end of this particular era in that we're going to see maybe an Alibaba delisting the news out last Friday that they're going to be pursuing a primary listing in Hong Kong. The question then became very rapidly, will that lead to a delisting in the United States? And then this morning, the wrinkle is that the company is at least saying that it wants to remain listed in both places. And I know this is not your normal domain, Natasha, but first impressions. First of all, a delisting does sound like a big deal because it is. And when this news broke Friday, the thing that stood out to me is that almost 200 firms faced this threat of potentially having to delist due to a SEC request. And the SEC request, if I'm getting it right, was basically like in 2020, there was a law that kind of the SEC wanted to be able to review auditors work. And because U.S. list Chinese companies have said no, some of them are added to this list. Alibaba is one of them. And to me, that was just kind of like, this is the biggest name that I've paid attention to having to do this in a while. And kind of feels very like 2019. I think we were talking about this in 20, 2019 or 2020 of a lot of delistings happening. Well, I mean, there was the whole Ant Group IPO that was scuttled that kind of kicked off the great wave of Chinese technology regulatory pressure that is now kind of easing. And uh, last week, I think Jack Ma stepped down from Ant. That's kind of, I think, a, a good book into that story. But in the case of, of Alibaba, I think they really made a lot of, of headway for Chinese companies in the U.S. markets because it was a huge, well-known business that had a strong IPO, traded well for a long time. And given some issues with Chinese-based companies listing in the U.S. historically, I mean, we don't have time to get into the issues there, it kind of pushed back against the narrative. However, you're right on the auditing point. So essentially, the SEC says, look, if you're going to list in the U.S., we have to be able to verify your numbers so you're not just making stuff up. And China goes, no, national security. And that's, you know, impossible force, unmovable rock. I don't know what's going to happen here, but something has to change. And I think the context that matters here isn't just that it's another dust up between the U.S. and Chinese governments and how they differ in their view of the world. But also we are seeing a increasingly anemic or in trouble Chinese economy. And so they definitely want to ensure capital access. So that plays into this as well. Definitely. What you brought up earlier about Jack Ma stepping back from the ant group, I was a little bit like, do we connect these dots? Does it feel correlated? And I think you just summed it up really well, where it's kind of just like this broader tension. And last but not least, it is a markets themed Monday episode. My question for you is how much does Alibaba need the US? Like, Beyond, I guess, the sound of delisting from the U.S., is it really kind of like the capital answer it's looking for? Or are there other things that we may not know it's relying on the U.S. for? I'm viewing more Alibaba as bellwether than beneficiary of this particular thing. So Alibaba is well capitalized as far as I know, and it's probably not in need of more cash. But a lot of Chinese companies may want to have listed in the United States to tap this particular market, given how much money there is in the American financial system. If that becomes impossible, that restricts their overall ability to raise capital. And if they're, you know, constrained to just Hong Kong and say Shanghai, well, you know, that's a, a big investor pool, to be clear, large economies, but also a, it's a smaller world. And so the question really becomes, can China have its own set of rules and still interact with the world? Or do you have to be a bit more open to interact with a more open global banking and financial system? I think the answer to that's yes. China seems to say maybe. And so we'll see. But Let's move on to some startup news, Natasha. Uh, oh, this is not, well, from bad news to bad news, frying pan to other frying pan. Uh, what's going on with ClearCo? Yeah, so ClearCo, for people who don't know it by its new-ish name, it used to be called ClearBank. It's a Toronto-based fintech capital provider that really got popular for its, quote, 20-minute term sheet that I think TechCrunch broke the news of 
all about non-dilutive capital, and it had had its third layoff in kind of a pandemic period. So on Friday, I wrote that it laid off 125 people or 25 percent of its entire staff. Wow. And the other thing that they did say in, in the memo that I was able to receive from them is that they are thinking about strategic options for their international operations and international growth was a big part of their 2021 narrative. And so we're seeing both a decrease in the amount of people that are working there and also a decrease in ambition, it kind of sounds like. And so to me, it was just kind of like a huge slash to a company that I've been following for years and really benefited from something that you've covered a ton, Alec, which is the e-commerce boom. I mean, ClearCo and e-commerce are kind of like this. I guess I'm crossing my fingers, people who can't see. Yeah, no one else is on Google Meet with us, Natasha. No one else can see you. <laughs> so so super, super unsurprising, but, but obviously a bummer in a way when people lose their jobs. Are you tying the e-commerce and ClearCo boom in that they both kind of grew uh, or saw an acceleration during the early COVID era. And as we see e-commerce decelerate, we're also seeing companies like ClearCo begin to struggle. So not that they're the same, but that they're, they're following similar tracks. Yeah, well, I guess in order for ClearCo to win, e-commerce needs to boom. They primarily serve online businesses. And so for them to see a slowdown in any way, it, it impacts each and every single one of their revenue makers. And they have yeah. they, they spent all of last year building this huge product suite and betting even bigger on e-commerce. So that's what I meant there. The international operations side to me and, and scaling back in that way, we don't have many details for, but something to watch. Yeah. Because I guess I wasn't sure why they had to say that then in a way. Like, I don't know if this makes sense, but I'm like, why would you tell people that you're considering it unless you want to get bought up and they do have a ton of international competitors? Well, yeah. I mean, if you want to offload that for either a large stake in a competitor that might do well or a bunch of cash, well, there you go. There are your options. And if you do want to do a deal, it may not be the worst thing in the world to say, hey, we're open for business, you know? Totally. I'll just say 125 people, 25% of its staff means that it had 500 people. And now it's got 375. So still a large company, even after its third wave of layoffs. Yeah. And valued at $2 billion per the last time I chatted with them. We'll see if they raise extension money in any way. I know you guys had a at TC Plus, I've had a bunch of coverage on that. So I don't know how easy it's going to be, but I imagine that's part of that next goal. Well, what is ClearCo? Is it a fintech startup or is it a lender? And if it's a lender, it's not worth that much. So we'll have to see. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to more recent news uh, from today, I believe. UiPath has bought a company called Refiner. UiPath was a smash hit on the startup front in the RPA or robotic process automation space. Went public has uh, gone up and then gone down, much like many companies that went public during the COVID era. But it has bought a company called Refiner. And this is going to be acronym soup. But as UiPath does RPA, Refiner does NLP. And if you combine the two and mix an AI, what do you get? You get enterprise automation. Now, Natasha, does that make any sense at all? Or should I make it many more words than that? <laughs> I think the big question I have that everyone else probably who's listening has is like beyond UiPath, why is this important? So robotic process automation is a method by which you can essentially tell a computer to do a set of tasks for you and get the human out of the loop for rote efforts. Uh, the problem is there's only so much stuff you can really kind of decide to automate. This brings up a thing called process mining, in which software goes and watches what you do. A little creepy, but hey. And then it will help you design processes to essentially automate tasks. Now, that's in between like intelligent systems and hard coding stuff. But I think the next step in this progress towards more efficient and automatic automation is bringing in natural language processing or NLP. So that way it can better understand not just what you're doing and clicking on, but also maybe what you're typing, where you're typing it and that sort of thing. So it brings in more theoretical intelligence to the UiPath world. And don't forget, UiPath was big in the first wave of RPA. It doesn't want to lose out to companies that are taking a more AI infused approach. But in general, I think this shows that startup deals are getting done, that uh, enterprise tech is still hot. 
and that we should see some mid-size-ish deals out there because there's no terms for this one, which means probably less than 100 million. Okay, that was going to be my last question. Obviously, UiPath has been making a ton of acquisitions. And so I completely hear you on the point of like the older company wanting to stay experimental, kind of like equity starting a Monday show, <laughs> wanting to be experimental. If I can compare us to UiPath for a second. <laughs> and I know we're experimenting because I have my Apple headphones into my ears and I have my over ear headphones over them and it's crushing my right ear, which really hurts. <laughs> no. We have an echo we're trying to address while we talk and I haven't managed to check the space stats. So I'm going to give us a B plus this morning and then I'm going <laughs> to fix my ears for the next time we do this so that this doesn't hurt as much. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> last, last thing though on the UiPath thing. So Google is making noise about being more productive internally. And, you know, a lot of companies hired aggressively in the last couple of years. And I think that we're not trying to shake out, you know, what would these people do? Do we need all of them? Uh, I think Zuck said that, you know, not everyone at Meta needs to be there. So I, I think there's a theme here in the broader business world about getting more from less. And so maybe companies in the RPA space uh, will be well set up to take advantage of that uh, general push towards more efficiency because automation is one way to approach that. So I'm curious to see how that goes. It's what we expected to play out with things getting cheaper, people being unable to raise. Not something that's happening here, but consolidation is kind of that side effect when joining forces makes more sense than trying to swing big and, and buy yourself. So a bunch more to come. And then last from the world of startups, there is a new Africa-focused VC fund out there. This is a firm called, it's either French or it's not, but it's pronounced uh, We Capital, O-U-I. I think that's probably the French pronunciation. They're an Africa-focused VC firm based in Lagos and Massachusetts, and they just pulled off the first close of their second fund. They've put together $11 million of expected $30 million vehicle, which of course is much greater than their first fund, which was $5 million. So the first close of fund two is more than 2x the full size of fund one, which Dang. means more money for Africa. More money for Africa. It follows the story that Tage wrote a while ago, which is that Africa at large is somewhat bucking the trend of this broader venture slowdown. And, and in that story, one of his sources mentioned that the growth in Africa VC funding for the continent will depend on four countries, Nigeria, Egypt, Kenya, and South Africa. Yep. This fund that we're talking about today is partially based in Lagos, so that would fit the trend with it being based in Nigeria. Um, but, you know, those countries still represent 80 to 90 percent of all funding on the continent. To see more money going into the ones that already have a big presence, it makes entire sense. It makes sense, but it's good to see more funds being raised at, at larger dollar amounts, especially at this point in time in, in the business cycle about startups. But I think this just goes to show how there's still so much opportunity on the mm -hmm. continent in Africa to, to build stuff. As with many, what you might call developing startup scenes, we have seen a big fintech push, uh, but we've also seen a lot of e-commerce activity via Jumia, a, a public African tech company here in the US. And so I'm excited about this. I don't know the firm that well, but I wanted to flag it, uh, not just to share, but also to add it to my radar. And We Capital has made 18 investments so far. According to our reporting, that is fintech, logistics, mobility, e-com, healthcare, and enterprise software. So that's, uh, I think, the entire world of startups minus VR. <laughs> you mentioned Jumia. Let's turn the episode to the public markets and how companies are performing here. I mean, earnings is your Super Bowl that happens still every every quarter, but still Super Bowl every quarter. So, so tell us what we're thinking about this week. So when we think about the, the world of technology companies, there is big companies, there's middle-sized companies, and then there's startups. And most companies never get past the mid-sized stage. You know, they get to be large, but they don't get to be mega cap. Then there are these trillion dollar behemoths out there, your Microsofts, your Apples, your Alphabets, your Metas, and your Amazons. There you go. I think I got them all in there. These are companies that are worth trillions of dollars in aggregate. They're roughly equivalently in value to all the unicorns in the world, if you want to think about it that way. So the question is how they do. And Natasha, I thought we could just talk about each one very briefly and then break down lessons from it. 
yes, I'm so game. I've prepped and I have questions slash thoughts on each one. So your favorite early stage reporter is, is out here talking about public markets this week. <laughs> this is what it's like whenever I talk about seed rounds. I'm like, Natasha, how about those safes? <laughs> And then I have to just hope that she knows what I'm trying to say and that she'll cover for me. So, you know, it's only fair. <laughs> Let's All start right. off with um, Amazon. Yes. Okay. So Amazon revenue, 121.2 billion versus 119 expected. The things that I care about more inside of Amazon's numbers are AWS, its cloud computing division, and its ads business. So AWS, 19.7 billion, slightly ahead of expectations in the quarter. And its ads business, 8.76 billion, also slightly ahead of expectations. E-commerce growth is slowing. My thought here, looking at all these numbers, is that Amazon is a slow-growing, unprofitable e-commerce business stapled to a high-growth public cloud business that kicks off mountains of operating profit. And uh, I wonder if that's going to be the story of Amazon for quarters to come. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, one, I'm very happy I can still make AWS jokes about how good it is. And then second, as I'm hearing this, it continues to make sense. Why Amazon was able to buy One Medical is because it has such a strong business. Did it say anything about One Medical or is it kind of like, okay, we're, we're doing well enough that we can afford such a big play? I do not see a mention of One Medical in its July 28th, 2022 announcement document, but you have to understand how Amazon reports earnings. If you've okay. never read an Amazon report, it starts off with like 80,000 words about what they did in the quarter and then you get to the numbers. And I do what I always do with stuff like that is I scroll past all the words and go right to the numbers. I don't know who they're for, but they break down stuff like AWS customer wins. I don't care. I just care about the aggregates. But no, uh, one medical is not in here, but certainly AWS is paying for, I think, that uh, future operating loss. Okay, great. One last question on Amazon, which is, I guess, around Rivian. So Amazon reported a net loss of $2 billion, And a lot of the stories I saw say that this loss was chalked up to Amazon's stake in Rivian, which is about 20% Rivian, for people who don't know, electric automaker, not doing too well. So is that true? Like, is it really that simple? It has a big investment in Rivian. And so it has this big loss or something else going on here? No, that's I mean, frankly, that, that's a really good summary. So Rivian, which went public late last year, kind of right in that moment when the stock market was at kind of an apex point before the downturn, they really nailed that IPO timing. The shares <laughs> of Rivian uh, went as high as $197.47 per share. Today, there were $35.20. So quite the descent. The company is still worth $30 billion, so it's still quite valuable. And I would not overly conflate the okay. value of the business versus its operating results. I don't know, you know, uh, Kirsten and, you know, Tim and everyone else that tracks this sort of stuff for, for TechCrunch could do a better job. But my read is that Rivian is, is ramping up production and is doing what it said it was going to do and is now probably at a more fair price for its equity. But for Amazon, to your point, they own a bunch of this company it went down in value that impacts their net results. And so I believe the company would have actually had net income of a billion or $2 if it wasn't for the decline in value Rivian stocks. So Amazon actually made money, but it also didn't in accounting terms. Welcome to finance. <laughs> no, I mean, I'll take it. That adds a lot. But let's move on and talk about Apple. What was Apple's high level numbers this earnings season? Revenue of 83 billion, slightly ahead of expectations. It made about four cents more per share than anticipated. However, it was kind of an uneven quarter inside the business. So if you look at iPhone and services, revenue was up there, but it was down at Mac, other devices, which I think is like AirPods and so forth and iPad. And so what we're seeing is kind of a, a mixed message from Apple. I was expecting to see more of um, a straight through line, if you will, between Apple's results and consumer sentiment, but it seems to be a little bit uneven. And ironically, Natasha, it does appear that smartphones, which were once a luxury item, are now essentially a, uh, a required durable good. Because mm -hmm. here we're seeing you know, a 10% decline year over year in Mac sales, 
plus, I think it was 3% in iPhone sales, which is amazing to me because the economy is supposed to be trash. No one's supposed to have any money. And yet iPhone sales are good. It's a very like human stat when I think about what's around me and the people that like what I see my friends buying. Right. And like, I don't know the last time any of us really bought a computer desktop or like a new laptop. Like you try and make that last in a way. And so I do wonder a little bit of like how life cycle of these devices plays a role. Apple obviously releases a new iPhone every year. And so I wonder also if the energy that Apple is putting into the iPhone translating to sales versus how much it's putting into other products. And I'm sorry if you work on Apple's desktop team, but I just no, no, it's, it's, it's <laughs> What's really interesting is if you made me sit down and write down a list of the most innovative Apple products from recent times, the iPhone would be at the bottom. And I think their chips they're putting into their desktop and, and laptop computers would be at the absolute top. Okay. So there's an interesting inversion because your analysis is totally valid. It's just weird to see the inputs not really equal the outputs. Like I have an uh, M1 iMac over there on my other desk. I'm so jealous for what it's I, worth. <laughs> I kind of want to throw it out and get an M2, you know, like I feel like, or like an M2 Max Pro Ultra Edition, whatever the hell. They're going with the Windows Vista branding now for, for Mac chips. Uh, but the company is still making a lot of money. Gross margins are strong and it's rich. Last question. I saw in the show notes that you said that there's no formal guidance that was really released. And I don't really know what formal guidance is. Am I over-indexing on that being spicy? Is it spicy that they didn't release anything? It's more like the economy is kind of like, huh, no one knows. Are we in a recession? Are okay. we in a boom? What's going on with energy prices? Is it all Russia's fault? Will Ukraine export grain? Are we about to have a war over Taiwan? So I think a lot of companies are like, given just the sheer level of uncertainty, we probably don't want to overly guide the street and then miss because that really undercuts your credibility with the market. And so you can just say no guidance and investors can take that as they will. I think it's not very bullish usually, but it is a way to hedge a little bit if you're a company of this size. Okay. Speaking of slowing down and just things kind of shaking out, let's talk about Microsoft. It had ah, yes. a pretty surprising quarter historically based on our coverage. So what's happening with Microsoft? So a uh, very slight revenue miss, very slight profit miss. Essentially, much like with Amazon, the story here is just cloud strength. Okay. Azure, Microsoft's public cloud that competes with AWS and uh, Google Cloud or GC just crushed it. I think it grew around 40%. Microsoft grew low double digits. So certainly kind of pulled forward by its cloud. Now, unlike Amazon, Microsoft doesn't actually break out operating profit from Azure, to which I say to my friend Frank Shaw, come on, Frank, how about some more data? <laughs> but the problem is I was trying to summarize Microsoft's results in our little notes doc we have. And the issue is it does so many things. Like I didn't want to break down for you the difference between Office 365 commercial seats sold in a quarterly basis compared to Microsoft 365 for consumer seats. But then also if we do that, then we're probably breaking in Dynamics, Dynamics 365, Xbox, Surface, et cetera, et cetera. Microsoft is a country that has various businesses. Some of them are doing well. Some of them are doing less well. That's the story. Seriously. I mean, originally my understanding was like similar to Amazon, which has AWS. Microsoft has Azure, which is Azure. It's biggest revenue stream, by the way, or is that? We don't actually know the actual scale of Azure okay, because okay. they only break out its year over year percentage growth. Okay. Oh, right. Boo. <laughs> I mean, yeah, thanks for that, Microsoft. But to me, like, it's really interesting to see how big of a beast it is. And we've always seen that discourse, which is like Microsoft is this like bigger than anything business that has all these different dedicated arms and revenue streams. And so I guess in some ways I'm like, okay, like the fact that you're only going to share aggregate percentages, it's a better story in a way too, right? They don't have to show yeah. those micro yeah. changes. And like, I don't want to be too hard on Microsoft because the numbers they release are actually relatively granular and they have some good spreadsheets they put out. And so it's, it's generally pretty good, but the Azure number is the number at the business. Okay. And so the fact that they're not telling us 
makes me chafe and become annoyed. Like Amazon used to always obfuscate Kindle sales numbers. They would report year over year percentage growth, but it was Kindle hardware sales. It was not driving Amazon's top line forward. Azure kind of is. And so that's why it's different. That's amazing. But I just noticed that we should probably scoot along here. Okay, okay. Uh, we're, we're going uh, a little long. So Meta, Natasha, aka Facebook, aka Big Zuck's Empire of No Fun. Uh, let's see. Revenue was a little bit of a miss. And critically, it actually shrank from a year ago. So unlike growth at the other companies, Meta got smaller. Uh, not by much. Uh, only a couple hundred million dollars, but certainly a surprise. And I think the first revenue decline since it went public. The company's revenue was $28.82 billion in this quarter, which was a 1% decrease from $29.07 billion in the second quarter of 2021. Is 1% decrease considered messy or is it just kind of like a small dip that's understandable given our macroeconomic environment? Obviously, like as we said in our story, it is the first time since going public in 2007 that they reported a decline in quarterly revenue year over year. So of course that's newsworthy. It's newsworthy and it's indicative of Meta not being able to outperform the macro environment to a large degree. And there have been concerns about Facebook and its business practices, and there have been campaigns, you know, criticisms and so forth. But the company just always had this great rebuttal to its critics, which was, well, we grew and had record profit again. And in this case, it's not happening. And so I think it opens up a lot of questions. So I don't think it matters if it's 1% or 2% or 3%, but the fact that it was negative growth at all is the story. And can it kind of rebound out of that? The the inside track to the meta numbers is what they're spending on their metaverse push or what they call reality labs internally. Uh, revenue grew from 305 million in the year ago quarter to 452 million in the most recent. Not bad, 50% growth. However, losses went up from 2.4 billion to 2.8 billion, which is um, many ducats. That's a lot of money. Yeah, what a bummer. Let's end with Alphabet. Yes, Alphabet, quickly, very slight miss on revenue. Very slight miss on EPS. Google Cloud grew a lot. Once again, the same story. Essentially, cloud's pulling forward the major major companies. If you're a big tech company, you can make a lot of money off of ads and, and kind of the hyperscale public cloud. And if you're not, you can't. And I wonder if that's going to lead to a two-class system and technology companies long-term. And then finally, if you think about Meta and Alphabet together, what we are seeing often at both companies is selling more ads at a lower price. And so I really think that we're now seeing Meta become kind of like 20, 2018 Alphabet to a degree. And I'm not sure it's going to work out for them because they don't have a cloud compute division, but they do have an other bets equivalent. So they're going to lose a lot of money doing that. And uh, if that didn't make sense, well, I tried to do it in as few words as possible. <laughs> My last question is just like, who are the winners this time? Like, were there two companies, three companies, one company that like you think won necessarily this earnings or has everyone kind of given mixed messages? I mean, I mean, these companies are too big to have unified results to the level of cleanliness that I think we'd like. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say that the winner is the cloud. And I think that the fact that as everything else slows, gyrates and kind of jitters in the market uncertainty, the fact that public cloud spend, which is a proxy for, I think, overall kind of like the enterprise digital transformation uh, did so well is uh, proof that uh, Jason Lumpkin was right and that the cloud will keep on going. <laughs> okay. On that note, I have so many headline ideas for this episode. Thank you for letting me be on with you, Alex. No, an absolute treat. I have no idea how long we just went, but I know it's too long. So uh, the next time we try this, we'll try to do it more close to the 10 minute target. But uh, thanks everyone for hanging out with us. And uh, we'll throw this up on the uh, feed in a little bit. Natasha, a real treat. Grace, thanks for doing all the logistics and uh, we'll see you around. Bye. Bye everyone. 